With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, welcome to the Stoker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, you're listening very much in the future because I'm recording this before the Champion of Champions final between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Judd Trump. So by the time you listen to this, you'll know who's won. I've no idea. I've no idea and I wouldn't like to make a prediction. Uh, not least because it would be foolish. <laughs> because by the time you hear this, you will know. But it promises to be a great day. Let's hope it is indeed a great final. Uh, and then we're straight into the, the UK Championship. Uh, we have the qualifying already started at Ponds Forge in Sheffield and then on to York on Saturday. The big news is, you may have seen this online, the big news is there's going to be commentary on the last four days of the qualifiers. Uh, so for the first two days, myself, Phil Yates and Stephen Hallworth, uh, getting the band back together after the uh, Championship League experiences, uh, we're going to be commentating on World Snooker Tour's Facebook and YouTube pages and indeed on Discovery+. Plus. It's going out on there as well. Uh, so you'll be able to join us. And it's not just going to be, we're not just doing the sort of the normal match commentary that you'd see on television. We very much want it to be interactive. So we want snooker fans to contact us with queries and comments and any any sort of uh, questions you may have, uh, you know, get in touch and we want to interact. And uh, particularly viewers watching all around the world, we want to know where you're watching, what you think of the action. We're going to be setting little questions and also uh, competition. So you'll be able to win tickets to the UK Championship, tickets to various other things, sign programmes, all that sort of thing. Uh, we're going to be on all three sessions on Monday and Tuesday. And then on Wednesday... It's the two Judgment Day uh, programmes, and I'm delighted to say I've been asked to join Rob Walker and Ken Doherty for that as well. So that's the final round of qualifying over two days. The draw will be on Thursday, I think between sessions is the plan at the moment. Um, and again, we, we, we rely on people getting in touch and uh, letting us know what they think, particularly about, of course, the history of the tournament. I'm not going to do a long history here. Uh, I've done it before, and you know you can go back and listen to previous episodes. But the UK Championship is a fantastic tournament, and I do believe this year it has sort of been restored to former glories in as much as there's now a focus on quantity over quality. Sorry, I'll put, I'll rephrase that. There's now, I've <laughs> got it the wrong way around. There's now a focus on quality over quantity. In previous years, as you know, all 128 players at the venue, the second arena, which no one ever liked, it's been called a car park, it's been called, called a toilet. Nothing good has been said about that. Very cramped second arena. That's gone. 
It's now just two tables. It's the top 16, as at the World Championship, seeded into the last 32, and then 16 qualifiers facing them. And it means every match in the final stages will be televised, and there's kind of no hiding place. You can't come through from sort of table three or four, you know, keeping your head down. You know, everyone is out in the middle now. I think that's better, personally. Prize money's gone up. They're making an effort with the, the barbecue uh, in York, the, the sort of the fan zone, the catering, all that stuff that's been talked about. Judd Trump, again, was talking about it this week. Uh, we'll maybe deal with that in a later edition of the podcast because I think he made some interesting points. I also think that he could have been challenged on a few of them. Um, but anyway, the, the World Super Tour are making an effort to sort of upgrade the UK Championship because there's a feeling it's fallen behind. I mean, the World Championship is what it is, but certainly the Masters and a few other tournaments as well, the Tour Championship, the Champion of Champions indeed. Uh, some people feel the sort of experience of attending those events maybe is better. So the UK Championship uh, has been sort of given a bit of an upgrade and, as I say, quality over quantity, that's the way forward. So do join us uh, online, as I say, the World Snooker YouTube and Facebook pages and Discovery Plus. And kudos, I have to say, to World Snooker because myself and Phil, uh, I don't think this is breaking any confidences we did at the start of the season, go to them and say, look, you're not making enough of the qualifiers. If you're going to spread them out in the way they are over several days but not put commentary on them, you're missing an opportunity actually to promote you know, your other tournaments and do ticket deals and that sort of thing. And they listened and they've come back and they said, OK, we're going to give it a go this week. So whether it's going to continue depends a lot to uh, a great extent on the on how much people sort of get involved this week. Uh, now, this episode of the podcast, uh, thanks for all your emails. We're going to deal with them next week because this is a special episode. I say special. <laughs> You'll be the judge of that. Um, but we're doing uh, a snooker player bingo with a twist. It's actually non-snooker player bingo. And uh, self-explanatory, but it's basically people who've been around the snooker world, but uh, are not players. Simple as that. So people names you may know, names you may not know, but people who've been involved in the sport but are not players. Neil Folds, Alan McManus, and Phil Yates join me for that. But I'm just going to just do one email first because it is kind of pertinent to, to right now. It's from John Bennett. He said, "I'm not sure if my point has already been discussed, but here goes. I applaud Will Snooker Tour's decision to pay up to twenty thousand to the low-earning players." But I hope this does not apply to players that aren't entering all available tournaments. Stephen Hendry being the obvious example. Has specific criteria been set out or is this situation not clearly covered? I haven't seen anything covering such a situation. Clearly it would be unfair for Hendry to play in two or three events and potentially get £20,000 and not win a match where others play in all events with the expense that goes with it. What's your view or knowledge on how this will work? That's John Bennett. Well, John, uh, you can put your mind at rest. No, the, one of the contingencies of that is that the players have to enter all available tournaments. So if you enter one or two, you won't get it. And of course, this has had a really um, positive effect, I think, because it's meant that we've seen players from parts of the world where it's actually financially maybe not viable to keep coming over everything actually come over. We've seen, for example, Deshawat Pumjang has turned up, uh, much to everyone's delight, from Thailand and various other players, Himanshu Jain from India, and we've got the Egyptian player, Mohamed Ibrahim, and uh, you know obviously Andres Petro from Estonia. A lot of the international players are actually playing and you've got to think that 20,000 guarantee is a massive reason for that. It's just taking a bit of the, the financial pressure off them. So, yeah, you have to enter all available tournaments. But I do want to comment on the Stephen Hendry situation because I think he's been um, very unfairly criticised, actually, this week by people who don't really understand the issues. The issue is this, OK? He is working for ITV at the Champion of Champions, and that is something that he, you know, many months ago would have been booked for. He wasn't to know that the UK Championship was going to be played um, at the same time, the qualifiers. Now, this whole situation could have been very easily avoided, very easily avoided, by doing just one very simple thing, and that is scheduling his second match on Monday. 
If that had been done, there wouldn't have been a problem. But in fact, his first match was scheduled for Saturday morning. That wasn't a problem. He could have played that. His second match, had he won, was scheduled for Sunday afternoon, when he would have been working on the final. So he would have, in fact, obviously would not have come back from Sheffield, so would have missed the last two days of the Champion of Champions. Had it been scheduled for Monday, he could have played Saturday. If he won, he could have then worked Sunday and then gone and played on Monday. Now you might say, well, why should they organise a schedule round him? I would say, why shouldn't they? <laughs> this is the thing. Last week, he withdrew on Sunday night when he realised what the playing schedule was. He got a reply from World Snooker on Monday morning acknowledging the withdrawal. An hour later, and this wasn't their fault because nobody told them, but an hour later... Will Snooker's social media team put out these posts with his picture on advertising the qualifiers off the back of the fact he's playing in them. And that's the whole point. That's the reason the likes of him and Jimmy and Ken Doherty have been given these wild cards. It's to try and generate interest. If you're going to try and generate interest, you have to understand that these legends are very much in demand to promote the game in other ways, particularly on television. So therefore, some heed has to be paid to that. They've got a problem in January. The, the Turkish Masters and Welsh Open qualifiers are being played during the Masters. So those three, who are all working on the Masters, have got to try and work out how they can possibly play in them. I think the first event, possibly, there is a day before the Masters where they could play. But again, World Snooker have to be alive to that, and they have to look at the schedule, and they have to do their best to accommodate them. Uh, and Hendry did the right thing. He could have played the first match, and had he won, he could have pulled out the second one. But to be fair to Andrew Padgett, who, had he beaten him, you know, might have been upset that... His opponent then withdrew. He just said, no, I'm not going to play at all. And I, I, I thought he did the right thing, actually. And I thought the criticism of him was a bit lazy and a bit kind of predictable. Um, because he never said... I mean, I interviewed him when he announced his comeback. He never said he was going to play in everything. He never said... And you don't have to. Nobody has to. Um, he can choose which events he plays in. He chose to play in the UK Championship, but the schedule didn't work out. Um, so I thought the criticism of him was faintly ridiculous, actually. Um, and I thought he did the right thing. And I think uh, it, it could have been very easily avoided had he had Wilson who could just schedule his match for the Monday. The whole thing could have been avoided. Anyway, uh, on that uh, on that political hot potato, uh, as I say, do join us for the uh, the qualifiers this week. Promises to be very interesting. Long days, I think. <laughs> Three best of 11s. We start at 9.30 British time every morning. Uh, so do join us for that. But uh, in the meantime... Uh, it's non-snooker player bingo. As I say, it's about players. It's not, I'll rephrase that. It's not about players. <laughs> it's about other people in the snooker world who have made a contribution over the years. And you're going to hear from Neil Folds, Alan McManus and Phil Yates as we join non-snooker player bingo. OK, Phil, you're first up. OK, I think I'm going to go for someone who was a player of reasonable standard but much better known as a referee. You know, in these days, this season, we've seen quite a few referee mistakes. But the person I'm going to talk about, I can't ever remember him making a mistake. And that's how good he was. A fellow Scott Allen, Laurie Annandale. He won the, the Scottish doubles, didn't he, with Stephen Hendry when he was an amateur. But predominantly, he's well known for his officiating. And I think he was one of the best ever, personally. I thought he was very good actually I go back a long long way with Laurie the, the, the first tournament I ever played in was the Scottish under 19s and Laurie was the, the match secretary or whatever of the Scottish Billiards and Snooker Association so that was the first time I came across him it was up in Kirkcaldy in the Ambassador Club remember that um, I don't know if he was a good player I don't, did, did he play much? Oh decent yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but a really good referee I totally agree um Spent a lot of years on the tour, I'm guessing, what, a good 15 years or so. Um, really nice guy. And actually, 
thinking, forgetting the professional game and the refereeing and all the rest of it, he was a really good administrator because um, when I, when you showed up at the junior events in Scotland, this would be around 1987, I think, when I started playing in them, and everything was set in stone, the, the, the venue was good, he organised pretty much all that sort of stuff, prize money, everything ran like clockwork. He was that sort of guy, Laurie, wasn't he? Yeah, he, was, he did suffer fools gladly mm. because he did everything himself efficiently, so he expected the same from other people. The other thing with Laurie was he made you laugh because he was such an old curmudgeon and, and such a moaner. I always used to be, uh, you know, full of chuckles in, in his presence. Yeah, I mean, uh, as a referee, <clears throat> he was someone who did the job quietly and efficiently. I think that's really what you're looking for, isn't it? Someone that does the job properly it isn't the centre of attention. I'm not saying anyone else either. I'm not getting involved in that argument. I'm just saying that, you know, you, you almost don't notice the best referees. And I also know, I mean, obviously, I didn't know him personally that well, but... You know, he was the go-to man, wasn't he, for putting tips on and that. You know, he was the, the person at the time, and a lot of the players would rely on Laurie to, to put a great tip on. As a referee, yeah, I think he was he, he did the job very well, and as I say, with great efficiency. I actually went to his house. He lived in Rosyth, just near the, the fourth rail bridge, and I went there. And it was him who taught me to put a tip on a cue, sort of semi-properly. The way he did it was brilliant, and. Uh, he told us a couple of stories. I remember he was a cue hound, as we call him. He loved snooker cues, old ones. And he went to some old guy's house years and years and years ago. And the guy had a bunch of, like, we know, Burwatt champions, the old cues that are worth a few quid and all that. And the guy apparently was holding up his pea pods in the back garden with, like, Burwatt champions and all sorts of cues, <laughs> you know. That was kind of funny. One, but uh, a really good guy. And I kind of miss him because I've not seen... An awful lot of them, but a top guy, you know. Yeah, absolutely. He, uh, he, he had to get between Andy Hicks and Quinton Hand at the Crucible. There's all sorts of things said in, in, in that match, and of course they got in one of those fights at the end, and Laurie very sort of calmly got between them and just sort of ushered them off the stage. The other thing I remember with Laurie, you used to, you'll remember this, Phil, he used to work in the press room, the uh, sort of the sort of assistant. Now, traditionally, that's sort of a young person who's all full of enthusiasm. Fair to say, Laurie wasn't full of that much enthusiasm. And, one of, and this was sort of years ago, so it was before even the, the, the match sheets got emailed to people. So the person who was doing that job had to print them out and hand them round. And he would come round, he'd walk round the press room. There's a lot of journalists at the Crucible who walk round going, slave to the press, slave to the press, <laughs> completely disinterested in the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one other just brief thing. One of the first tournaments I played in was in the Davis Club in Edinburgh and it was on a street called Annandale Street oh, right. and I stupidly as you're a kid I thought the street was named after Laurie <laughs> obviously it wasn't I, I think Laurie kind of can stand for you know for all the refs really you know I mean we've been lucky in, in Snooker to have so many top officials it's not a glamorous life is it let's be honest you know it's, it's a lot of concentration you kind of only noticed if you do something wrong uh, we've been at the Champion of Champions this week we've got some great referees here young referees Marcel Eckhart has Got really good, hasn't he? He's got really good. Excellent. In a short space yeah. of time. And, and a lot of the others as well. And of course, a lot of them are at the qualifiers for the UK. They're long days. They're best of 11. Some of them are doing two best of 11s. You know, not always the high standard. So, uh, we, as Rob, Rob Walker says, we can't do it without them. I think Stephen flew him to tournaments on a kit. He, he flew him to Antwerp to a tournament out there. The tip was defective. And because, of course, he had to buy, pay for the ticket on the day, it cost £400, which back then was an awful lot of money. Laurie, not to Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it turned out to be profitable, profitable because Stephen won the tournament. But Laurie flew out to Belgium, put the tip on, and flew back the same day. Okay, well, Neil, let's see your okay. okay, I tell you what, while we're on referees, I'm going to say Len Ganley okay. because um, I thought I'd mention Len, and I thought maybe 
getting away from referees maybe perhaps later on. Um, yeah, look, someone I, I, I still miss actually in the game, you know, he passed away a few years ago. Um, and he was a different kind of referee to, to Laurie. He was, you know, outgoing. Um, he was the centre of attention, but I, I, I never felt threatened by that. I thought he was a really good referee. He's a very difficult guy, um, a very difficult guy not to like, although being away with him for three or four weeks on the tour, he would start to drive you mad after a while, but in a good way, you know, and, uh, I, th- I thought, um, I mean, he called me for a push shot at the Crucible once, but he wasn't one. But I just couldn't get annoyed with him. He just gave it on. I know that he would have given everything in, in good faith. And I think he was a strong referee, actually. I do think that, because he actually was the only referee I ever, I ever saw, it was in a match I was in, where he gave um, a miss when one of the players needed a snooker. Because it was such a diabolical effort to hit the snooker. And it, it was in my favour, so probably that's why I mentioned it. But it was, it was, I played somebody in the UK, I won't mention his name, but there was a red by the black, and he was right about hitting the black, there was like 38 in or something. So he played, well, I mean, it's almost like one of these shots in Paul where you, what do you call it in Paul where you just hit away, you don't even try Yeah, you push out. Push out, it was like almost one of those. So he called a miss, and this player's horrified, but it was the right decision. So he was a strong referee, a good guy, although I did get in a car with him once, and he had an old car and he was driving about 100 miles an hour on the motorway on a car that was not capable of doing that speed <laughs> and the whole car was shaking you know he was a, a real character he I was think. an extraordinary character he was larger than life yeah. he used to do this thing at the, at the world championship he would collect uh, a tenner for everyone for the to buy motorised wheelchairs yeah. for handicapped children but he would never if he'd never been there before he didn't know what it was for so he'd come up to people he went up to Prince Nazim and said give us a tenner without yeah. saying what it was about. I did eventually get to 20 quid. <laughs> well, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he was that, but yeah, he, he was all, you always knew he was in the, in the venue, didn't you? Yeah, I, I, I was lucky to, that, you know, when I turned pro, obviously he was a, he was just a big star throughout yeah. the 80s. I mean, a huge star, really. And, um, he'd one of those voices, uh, you know, as a player, as a kid growing up, it's the voice, isn't it? The John Streets, all these guys. And, uh, you know, he, eventually he's refereeing your match. And he also had, Remember, we, we actually, it was a year ago we went to the, the oh, Nordbreck yeah. and we stood in the holding area yeah. where we found an old snooker queue. That's yeah. another story. But Grisly he, business, that was. Yeah, very <laughs> business. He, he used to, um, he used to, when you get called in a minute before 10 o'clock, there was a countdown and there was a holding area and Len used to shout the immortal words, Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> That's very good, actually. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. And, and then you and you went right. It's match time, and in we go. And uh, there's so much to remember. He refereed uh, the, the, the O'Sullivan maximum, and Ronnie says, you know, he was actually part of the reason it was so quick because he just yeah. did the job. Yeah. Well, we did a little thing on that uh, World Championship last year. Anyway, I I, I think reference at the time is almost dancing with Ronnie. You do that, I'll do this, and it, it worked beautifully. It was a fantastic. He was in the advert, wasn't he? That he was part of that advert. Yeah, Volkrush, you're calling Black Label, I think it was. Yeah, yeah well, you know, the, the, the Clive had the, had the lowdown on how that how the trick worked. Uh, the spoiler alert, but uh, it, apparently it was uh, it was crushed cow shin in a condom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry okay. to break any illusions. Shin, did you say? Well, look, I started this podcast by saying one of the things with Laurie Annandale was I can't ever remember him making a mistake. I can remember Len making lots yeah. of them, but that doesn't make to say he wasn't a good referee. He was a good referee, I think. Yeah. Firm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The two Len Ganley stories I'll tell were nothing to do really with the way he officiated a match. You could tell a million Len Ganley stories, uh, but these are the two best ones, I think. One, he was on a plane going to China, I think it was to Hong Kong actually, 
and Len actually thought that he was a lot more famous than he actually was. <laughs> and you know when you take off from Heathrow and then you they bring the meal round after about an hour and then everything goes dark and you're expected to go to sleep. So they brought the meal round, they're clear of the meal trays away and Len stood up in this in this plane and looked down towards he was on the front row, looked down towards everybody and go, if anybody wants my autograph, can you come down now? Because I want to go to sleep. <laughs> and there's a hundred people looking, who's this? <laughs> it was just ridiculous. So that's one. But the other one, when we went to Thailand, he was always a great one for going knickknacks and stuff. And there was that phase going on, wasn't there? Those lasers, you know, those red lasers. That's right. And, and anyway, we came back from Thailand, and one of the next tournaments was Preston Guildhall. And he was refereeing there, and someone was making a noise in the crowd, and he said, can you, can you please stop? Can you please stop? Third time, he put one of the lasers on this bloke's face. <laughs> <laughs> this red light was on this bloke's face. I think he thought he'd got some kind of hitman after him, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, like so, the movie Predator or something? <laughs> yeah. I must tell you one final one. Aberdeen. So this kid came up and asked him for his autograph. So... His dad's gone, oh, well, we've got nowhere, we've got nowhere for, for Len to sign the programme. So Len said, don't worry. And he basically, <laughs> he signed the back of the kid's coat. It was a Nike starter. Yeah, I think, no, I think that was, he, he said, where shall I sign it? On the back. And he meant on the back of the programme. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just turned the kid around and there's Len Gandhi written across his back. What it was worth doing now? <laughs> on the Nike starter jacket, which was worth £100. <laughs> and the original note was worth £100 because Anne Yates, working in the WBC office, felt so badly. She gave him 100 quid out of petty, petty cash to get a new coat. <laughs> And just a final thing on the, uh, from a players thing and, and refereeing. To this day, when they call players in in a multi-table setup, it's the same words, isn't it? It's thank you, gentlemen, or yeah. thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And then the players go. He was brilliant. You got it. Got it. The Graham Horn story for Well, yeah, he's playing. <laughs> he's playing. Graham Horn's playing, and, and Graham had got a block of chocolate. Oh, I know this one. On the side of the uh, on the side of the uh, on his table. Anyway, it was the on the brown in the deciding frame and he's tapped Graham on the shoulder and said Graham can I have a block of chocolates I've got a bit low has <laughs> <laughs> he on the brown in the deciding frame yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's, I think that the, the point is he's a name I mean he passed away well, it must be at least a decade ago uh, and, and but retired long before then but he's a name you still hear mentioned a lot actually at tournaments he sort of left his mark on the sport Alan you're up next yeah, I'm going to go for um, uh, a guy who did play, uh, but he's more known as a commentator back in the day. And partly because it, I'm sure, Phil, and you guys will get to mention some of the stories about him. There's one in particular I'm interested in. is Mark Wildman. Mm. Um, he had a club somewhere in the northeast-ish. I think it was, like the, it, yeah, know, the east. I think it was some sort of North Ants way, wasn't it? With carom yeah. tables. Or yeah. Well, yeah. He owned, at one point, he owned the only carom table. Um, in Britain, I know that because Roxton Chapman was the British champion, and he said he couldn't defend the title because Mark had moved to Spain and took the table. <laughs> <laughs> it was in a place called Rawns, R A U N D S, yeah. But Mark Harmon was, we talk about chairman of the WPBSA, what a, a nice guy, what an absolute gentleman he was. And a lot of people don't realise with Mark Harmon, he actually got high enough in the rankings to play in the Masters on one occasion. I know, he was a good player. He was very funny with my dad in the early days, and uh, I didn't know Mark all that well until my dad played him in, um, uh, I don't know, it was a two-session match, might have been the UK Championship. Went down to the last frame, and he was looking over at me all the time, Mark. You know, and obviously, clearly I wanted my dad to win. He's going to... You'll get to our age one day, me and your dad, we can't pot a ball, you know, it's <laughs> ridiculous and all this, and he would just laugh his way through it. He was a very good player though, mm. um, 
quite a nervous man at times, but he was uh, good fun, a good fun. And, and uh, you know, him and dad ended up sort of, I remember the, the, uh, the qualifiers were taking place in Blackpool, and they were both still playing. And my dad and, and Mark would, would sort of share an apartment and, uh, you know, and, and talk the, put the world to rights, you know what I mean, at that point. Um, he, he was a great character, yeah, and as a commentator, he did he ever who did he, was he ITV mainly yeah I think he, he sort of did Eurosports Sky as well yeah uh, ITV he did Irish Masters yeah 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 for RTE yeah yeah, yeah. he wouldn't yeah. have said a bad word about anybody <coughs> I can't think that it was in his nature to ever be too critical of anyone no uh, he he was an eccentric certainly um, yeah very much so and uh, he used to have this skill every Sunday morning he'd say go on then pick a football match out at random um, I'll tell you what the attendance was and so you'd go like third division whatever it'd be you know, Leighton Orient against whoever. And he would beat within about a thousand, wouldn't he? The, the other, yeah, well, the other thing, of course, he used to get people to bet with him that he would, you know, get the right attendance. So uh, he'd say, yeah, I think, well, yesterday at Peterborough, I would say between three and 14,000. And he'd look in the newspaper and well, it was, no, it was, it was actually, uh, it was actually 2,760. No, I said between three. He had me a few times on that Well, he had yeah. another one with the phone book. Did any of you guys no. have a, it was at the Irish Masters at Goffs, and uh, those phone books are a thing of the past, but he would, I think wherever he went, he checked the phone book, and he would say, like, say, he would say to you, Phil, give me a three-digit number, so 419 times that by... 17 or something so you're out with the calculator do that and it, whatever it came to was the page in the phone book and he said go down you pick a number between whatever and he would go down and say yeah it's Mr Smith at Let's Be Avenue whatever you know <laughs> and, and you're all like how the heck did you know you know long I don't day, know, the long day, day that was one of his things but well, he, was a, he was a good guy he, when he ran the billiards um, it, it was the some anniversary of Mozart's birth and he Mozart played billiards in his youth and Mark had the idea that they would have this special tournament but they would dress in the old-style dress from, from Mozart's time. And, of course, it was completely impractical. Wearing these sort of heavy suits and the, just couldn't play. But that sort of guy was he, was. he was very interesting to talk to. I remember, Phil, we did a tournament where we had to go through a couple of, sort of passport checks. I think might have through Hong Kong. And he must have lost his passport four times. Oh, it was We'd ridiculous. Go in, like, there were two sort of gates you had to go through. And he I lost his passport. Yeah. Yeah. He just kept losing it. We went to Shenzhen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we went to that massive golf resort. And then we had to come through Shenzhen back into Hong Kong yeah. to get the plane back. <laughs> and it was just a nightmare. He lost his passport more than any living human being, I think, yeah. But a, a, a really, like I say, a really interesting guy. And um, he's, he's in Spain now, um, long retired. Hope, hope, hope he's doing well. Uh, so we're back with you, Phil. OK, I want to go for someone who has recently retired and who was a, a true backstage warrior. Pete Godwin, the, uh. the table fitter, who, you know... When you go to a pub sometimes and you, you see a, a barman or a barman, then you say, oh, they, they pull a good pint. Well, let me tell you, Pete put up a good table, didn't he? Yeah. For years on end, he was an absolute master at his trade. And uh, when he retired, it was uh, sad for all of us. I always loved talking to him about the tables. Obviously, from 82 to about 95, it was BCEs. And uh, the BC table, which, you know, the, the, throughout the 80s, the Higgins, Alex Higgins was the first one in 82, he, he used to say that the BC tables were really difficult to work with, but when they were up, they were, and especially when he put them up, the, the tables were awesome, weren't they? He was absolutely amazing at his job. And there was a, there's a skill with table fitters, isn't there, with, I don't know so much now because technology gets, gets better, 
But obviously there's eight legs, eight feet or whatever you want to call them, and you would put beer mats under that one, but that would knock out the top two and then level because there's five slates. He was brilliant at levelling tables. I don't know how he did it. Well, I don't know any of the, you know, on a more general, before we speak about Pete anymore, how these table fitters, I, I don't think they get anywhere near the credit they deserve. That is one tough job. And, I mean, from my own point of view, if I ever... If I ever had to put one table together, it'd be one too many. Because lifting the slates, dragging the, the you know the cloth across, and everything—that is an incredibly difficult job. They don't get the credit they deserve. But P was there from 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 day one for me. Yep. Before I think when my dad was professional before me, you know he was always there. And uh, you know he what he didn't know about that job is not worth knowing. You know, I mean, even recently I spoke to him a lot of the crucible and he. You know, yeah, when there was difficulties with tables, he was called back. Because I, I remember getting to the uh, crucible on the first morning when I was still with the BBC, and um, I said, hey, Pete, looking forward to it, because I've been here 10 days already. What do you mean? Like, he'd been up there ages, getting the tables ready and all that. You know, it's not, they don't just turn up on the day. And then I think he left and left uh, you know, other people in charge, and he would reappear at the end. So I think later on in his role, he was overseeing it. But he still put tables up, don't get me wrong, but not, not as much. But, uh, yeah, I mean... It, it's reassuring to know people that really know the job, like him, were doing it. You know, being a total fit, just being like a, a top-class snooker player, you need precision, but you also need power to lift those slates. They are so, so heavy. I can't <coughs> overstate how heavy they are. And Pete worked for many, many years putting tables up, um, obviously using certain muscles in his body. And then it was decided by the WPBSA that he would get a, um, a desk job, you know, shirt and tie and all that kind of stuff. And I think he'd be the first to agree that he was um, a square peg in a round hole. And, and very soon afterwards, he came back to doing the table fitting. But one thing that happened when he was doing the desk job and, and, and doing other tasks was he found real difficulty with his hands because he'd been so used to using them all the time. And suddenly his whole body reacted to the fact he wasn't picking these uh, slates up. And it was, it was quite a sort of painful experience for him for a, a few months before, obviously, then he got back into his old task and he was fine. Well, the, the, the last chat we had like this a few weeks ago um, about um, players and such like was uh, I mentioned the Scottish guy, Jimmy McNellan, who, who people will remember. Um, he actually was a table fitter for, for a number of years, and I think you're right, there was almost a fitness thing. If he got laid off it for whatever reason for a month or a couple of months, getting back into it was horrible because... You could lose a finger with those things in like the blink of an eye. Really, really dangerous job. But and touching on, yeah, he went to the kind of office job, didn't he? Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's not a good thing for the tables, yeah. basically. And then when he went back to do the tables, I thought, nah, that's good for everyone. But that was on the basis that plenty of people could have done the job he was going to, but not a lot of people could do the job he did on the exactly. tables, which was excellent. Yeah, but I mean, the point is, every venue is different, isn't it? You know, and they're all different challenges. I mean, the Crucible is actually one of the hardest ones because they drop the stage and there's those acro props under the stage. Some venues have multiple tables, so you know, it's a lot of work. And you know, we hear players sometimes complain about things, but players turn up on day one; it's all there already. They don't see all the work that's gone on, and you see them at the end descend when it's all over, and it's it's hard work. You know, it's through the night. Again, it's not glamorous, but it's very, very important for these tournaments because obviously the playing conditions help the players to play their best snooker um, so Pete and all the guys who do that you know it's, it's like you say Neil it's hard slog hard slog very much so yeah, yeah. a job I wouldn't want to do and as I say I think uh, uh, I mean <laughs> I've heard players talking about uh, I don't know uh, we, there should be more practice tables in the venue 
and uh, I, I just think that's every table fitter's nightmare. That thought there could be a load more tables that got to be maintained. Anyway, that's that's what that's what they do. And Pete was the head-on show when we used to have the 24-26 table set up at the Norbrook Castle Hotel in the early 90s. Now imagine that maintaining it. Putting those tables up, 26 tables at the time. It was a great servant at this point mm. for a long time. Definitely, yeah. Uh, Neil, we're back with you. Okay, we, we did mention this name yesterday, but I have to, I think Alan Hughes, the former MC, must be worth a, a little mention, mustn't yeah. he? He's still alive. Uh, I spoke to him last week on the phone, actually. I think he was 88 uh, earlier in the week. Um, and, w- and what a character, Phil. I mean, what a character. You know, not only doing his job but away from away from the uh, the mic what, what a great character incredible I dreamt about him twice this week too much information honestly last night and, and so I woke up and I like, oh and then you realise you sort of all the dream kind of thing so, but yeah I, it just made me realise you know I was lying there sort of trying to get back thinking about it what, what, a, what a great guy he was uh, a professional footballer with Brentford Norwich and I think he, he signed part-time terms with Tottenham as well he knew Jimmy Greaves and what he used to do he was in show business from the age of 16 and he'd go and play a, a summer season in Great Yarmouth and then come back and play football over the winter so he was a very skilled um, footballer he was very good at table tennis as well actually um, and he knew Willie Thorne's family before Willie ever got into snooker he actually used to babysit Willie when he was at, when when the great WT was a baby. <laughs> yeah, so so he'd been involved he'd been involved in that kind of sense, and then of course Willie got him involved in the uh, the master of ceremonies work, and oh, I thought he was just excellent. I didn't know he would be able to do that. I mean, I, did, I knew him as you say, we, we knew him already, and I thought, well, hang on, how's this work? But he had you know he had previous, he knew how to do yeah. the job. Well, the thing is, before <laughs> Alan, that role was very much, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Davis, Cliff the. He brought a bit of showbiz to it. Now, we have Rob, obviously. Now, Rob Walker's brilliant, and, and Phil Seymour, Ty Adja, they do a great job. But Alan established that as being, actually, a role. It wasn't just something anyone could do. He established it. And it's very important, because your, your role is to welcome the people in, to make them feel, before anything starts, you're welcome, this is going to be enjoyable, obviously give them all the house rules, and then give it a bit of something when the players come out. He had a way of doing it at the Crucible. It was a kind of like a slow dance, like a step that way, then back, and then a step that way, and then the other, so that he can address the whole audience. He was pure class. I loved his suits. He was like old yeah. school Londony. I'm guessing it, you know, from that, that from somewhere in London. And uh, his, his, we call it the Pater, obviously up in Glasgow. His Pater was brilliant, and to this day. Most times I see John Higgins well, having a laugh and we'll say, we'll say like, um, hello my baby boy. That, 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 we say, that was Alan Hughes, yeah. that's where that comes from. Yeah. All right, baby. You know, that was, when he seen you, that was a kind of, even like you see you go to the loo, you're in the gents. Hello my baby boy and all that. But just a brilliant character. Funny enough, there was, it was a tournament and John told me this. Alan Hughes wouldn't mind. He liked to have a flutter. Didn't oh, he you can say that again. <laughs> <laughs> so he's having a flutter on the matches, and John was playing, I can't remember, it doesn't really matter, but John was a, a, a warm favourite as he would be. And uh, John's gone to the gents after the match or something, and he's in the gents doing whatever. And uh, Hughes came in, but he doesn't know John's in there, and he's, the, John's won 
but Cusey has clearly bet the other guy and John's won five four in the pink or something he's like oh that John Higgins he, he done me tonight he absolutely done me I'll never forgive him you know all that <laughs> and John's like oh here we go you know but the thing with him is he had some ways of introducing players obviously John John was the wizard of Wishaw I think yeah. I think he might have invented that or he might have got him that nickname but there's a few things he didn't want if if um, if you um, let's just get this right now if someone was the very talented <laughs> it would mean that he, he was Rubbish. Not very talented at all. That was the only way you could think of dis- to decide. Solid all-round game. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, that, that was the death knell. Yeah. If you had, if you had a solid all-round game, then you, you, you were no good. And uh, the, very likeable, play, yeah. the very likable. In other words, <laughs> nobody likes this guy. Uh, the very likable. Well, here he is. Give him a big welcome. And the other one, and I was a victim of this a number of times at the Crucible. I remember one time going out against Ronnie. Twelve, uh, four behind with a session to go. So I come out overnight, coming out here, lamb at the slaughter. It's gonna, you're not gonna win. And he's going with a mountain to climb. <laughs> the Scottish, <laughs> like that means I've got no chance. What it really means is, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. This will be over in 20 minutes. <laughs> the curtain will go up and you can watch the, the closer match on the other I table. Know, right? This rubbish will be over he in a minute. as well, I just said it. Yeah. Yeah. He was a great entertainer. He worked at the Talk of the Town. He worked at the London Palladium. And he also used to open for um, Lovelace Watkins, who was a very, very big cabaret star in the 70s. Uh, he was a former uh, gold, uh, Golden Gloves boxer in America who would become a really uh, you know, popular singer. He performed in Las Vegas as well, Alan. So he was very confident in front of people. Um, he did occasionally though make mistakes and I think the best one ever was at the assembly rooms in Derby when he was introducing Alex Higgins now there's always pressure involved when you're introducing Alex Higgins or you're writing about Alex Higgins or you're playing him or you're, you're refereeing or whatever you're doing around him there's pressure so Alan clearly got uh, fell victim to the pressure and he he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce the very, very, and then he said 13 verys. Because I can't, I can't to that. The very, 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 and on about the ninth very, Alex has gone, the bleep's forgotten my name. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. finally, after 13, you remember who was. Alex is in the cab, yeah, yeah. Another thing I remember him quite well for the time, when I was my first probably two, three, four years as a professional, he did, he announced all the big Eubank fights, didn't he? Yes, Eubank, yeah. Ben, yeah, yeah. Eubank, Watson, Watson, Ben, all those. He was the, with the white, uh, the white, you know, evening yeah. jacket with a red carnation and all. He just pure class. Yeah. It, to, 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 he was a very good MC, brilliant. But to, to get their sort of full money's out, worth out of him, the world snooker in the end, they got him to do other duties backstage, including cutting the, 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 the cuttings out of the newspaper. So there's a snooker story, and he'd have to cut it out and stick it, to, which is quite demeaning, really, actually, with the MC. But anyway, he sort of. But he was he, he was known for basically missing all the all the cuttings. <laughs> it could literally have been on the front page, main story. You would miss it. So you would sort of get. You think there's not much in the papers today, and then you realise he missed half of them. And they also got him to do these backstage tours for school school children. Which basically involved him bring them backstage. He'd get everyone's name wrong. He'd say, "This is so and so." It wouldn't be them. And then eventually, the, it sort of ended when he went into this BBC studio, sort of uninvited. And David Vine was there, sort of getting ready for, for the program. All these sort of young tearaways trailing behind Alan. And sort of Alan's done the big spiel. This is Mr. Vine, and he's in charge. And you see him on the television, all this sort of thing. Have you got any questions? And this sort of little kid put his hand up. When are we going to make someone famous? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so that was the end of that. But no, I mean, he was just a very, very funny man. Um, I'm glad he's, he's doing well. Um, he's all right. He's okay. He still follows the circuit. He's missed on the circuit, very much so. And, uh, you know, like I say, he established that role that, that others obviously have, have taken on. Uh, we're back with you, Alan. Yeah, I thought long and hard about this last one, actually, and it's between two. But I'm going to go for a guy who I knew briefly. He wasn't a snooker player, but he was friend of, actually, Alan Hughes in the great WT. I only know him as Racing Raymond. <laughs> And I'm guessing that Phil and Boldy would maybe know a little about him. He was a real character. Well, he was. I mean, he was a bookmaker, wasn't he? And, uh, but yeah, I mean, he was a real character. But, I mean, he was the kind of guy that... Uh, I mean, he, he he was Willie's best friend, but he'd also back him all the time, wouldn't he? Mm. You know, and uh, when he missed that blue is the story that... The blue in the UK final, and we still say it now. It was an unmissable blue! <laughs> that's what he said, wasn't it, at the time? And we still say that now. Because I think Raymond, it probably cost him a load of money. But that, that was his experience. It wasn't unmissable, but it was just the way he said it. I used to write for the commentary even in Telegraph on, on Mick Price's matches, and Mick was playing really, really well. The reason I know it, because I was obviously having to watch all these matches. Anyway, we went to Dubai, and back in, this was pre-internet, you couldn't get a bet on. And I knew that, you know, Raymond would blow me a price, so I said, well, yeah. what price to Mick Price to win the match? He went, I'll give you two to one, you know, and well, a couple of quid on it, and I think it might have been a tenner. That, I never backed big, I'm just too uh, tight. Anyway, <laughs> Mick wanted two to one and he came came in with the, the, the 20 quid. <laughs> but then later on in the day, he came in in a full shakes regalia. Yeah, he got yeah. the full the full outfit on it. I don't think that went down. I don't think the authorities. Was, I was thinking about that. I'm yeah. not sure it went down. I don't think he meant any harm by it. No, it no, didn't, didn't, didn't go down too no, well. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah I, I actually remember him in Dubai. That's my abiding memory. Incidentally, what was his name? Raymond... Um, no, I do no I've forgotten yeah. I do I did know it he passed away um, yeah. I I can't think of it now yeah. Yeah, it might come to me the other thing about him was he was such a huge Willie Thorne fan that I can remember we were watching Willie play I think it was in UK Championship one time and he was close match again he probably had a big bet on him so now he's got it was the day before Q extensions and uh uh, Willie's got to get all the, the half bay on all that and he said don't worry he's the greatest player with the half part I've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> as if that's a thing oh, you play, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, play a shot about every two months with the half part one of the best stories about Rice and Raymond involved a swear word and I've got to say the swear word if I tell the story so I'll, I'll go to the arbiter and well, I don't know what it is Phil but I, I will allow it um, okay. If there's any complaints, then uh, yeah. Okay, they're at this meeting uh, in Newmarket, it was, and there was this horse called running called uh, this horse running called My Baboo, and anyway, um, it, Raymond laid this horse, and he lost a fortune because the horse won. So as they're leaving, someone said to him, "Well, racing, did you do My Baboo?" He went, "No, I did My Babolog." <laughs> <laughs> That's the story, Adam. Yeah, that's the one that I mean, that is, that was the, 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 I'll tell you one other one that, um, <laughs> I'll tell you another one out in that Dubai trip. Oh, that was brilliant. Uh, the, the, so we went to the aviation club that you yes, remember, yes. the little mini golf course yeah. and all that, and Folsey would have been there. So um, there was entertainment on, wasn't there, like belly dancers and all sorts of things. It was just a really nice night, night, great food and all that. He's on the stage with the, the little band and he's got the mic, but he's wo- he's wearing, I don't know what the name for it is, you know what the shakes wear over there, the, the full regalia, yes. with the, you know, the headdress thing and whatever, you know, I don't know the name of it, but he had the full thing on, Yes. and you're like, this might not be the thing, that, oh, I don't know, yeah. but, it, but you, you're just such a, 
a warm guy, wouldn't yeah. he? I, I don't think we ever went back there actually to Dubai. Coincidentally or not? Maybe that was the yeah. yeah the snooker authorities weren't uh, too enamoured with him for that. <laughs> well, I'm going to end with one myself, and uh, he was a player. Uh, but this is the Snooker Scene podcast, and Snooker Scene recently uh, there've been some changes. Uh, it's Clive Everson, the person I'm going to talk about, because uh, he's retired from journalism after 51 years of editing the magazine every month for 51 years. Nick, Mac- Nick Metcalf, who people will know from Talking Snooker, is it's become the new editor, so it's a sort of crossover, uh, which is you know exciting for the magazine going forward. But I just thought we would reflect on Clive's uh, extraordinary contribution to snooker. He was championing snooker long before it was on television, long before anyone else really wanted anything to do with it. He, as a young journalist, tried to get it in the newspapers, obviously commentated for, for decades, and, uh, well, you know, gave everything to it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, as you say, he was a player, um, but I don't think he's as well known as that. I mean, he's a good billiards player. Strangely enough, he used to represent Wales at snooker mm. billiards. I never really understood that. Well, he lived there when he was younger. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone particularly thinks of him as Welsh, do no, they? No. But, um, yeah, no, listen, uh, you know, his, his playing wasn't, uh, was not such a big big achievement as everything else that he ever did, no doubt about it. I mean, I, I was very lucky to work with, you know, Clive at the start of my sort of time uh, doing the commentary because you, 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 you need ro- roles are there for you. Clive knows his role, you know your role. Um, he never ever used to turn the mic off <coughs> at any point. That was the one thing I will say. And, and I mean, Alan would have worked. And you two guys won't have done strangely, Phil and Dave, because you're in the same role. But the, the mic would always be on. But um, he, he, and he didn't always say a lot when the with the Michael did he? You know, he's, he was, he'd say what needed to be said, and he, he had a very good way with words. And uh, well, I think he's still, you know, the best I've, oh, you know, present company, etc. You know, so <laughs> no, I think he's the best I work yeah. with in the, you know, I think he he laid down the, the, these ground rules from the start, yeah. which now we all work with. I think, or, yeah. or most of us do. Actually, he's. I, I think he might be kind of responsible for the reason I'm sitting here because. When ITV came back on to, the, to do the Champion of Champions uh, in 2013, I got an email or a phone call from production at ITV, and it was uh, about maybe coming on board and doing some pundit and commentary and stuff. And I thought, brilliant. And I, th- I could be wrong, but I think the main producer, it would have been Joe Blake Turner at the time, asked Clive, because uh, he was on board as lead commentator, um, is there anyone you know in the circuit that maybe you could suggest to maybe come on and have a go at doing whatever? And I think Clive put my name forward a little, and, and so that's probably the reason why I'm sitting here. You know, apart from the obvious, uh, an amazing commentator, um, I'm, I'm grateful to him personally for that. But some of the great lines, isn't it? It's the lines of finishing matches or frames or big tournaments. The the, the one with Ronnie O'Sullivan. Um, when he made his thousand century, and you know, he just he, he gave that. Uh, he, he basically just said, "What a player, didn't he?" And it just kind of said everything about yeah. the end of the thousand century, and just uh, fantastic snooker from the gods, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in the in the modern world, if you say that someone's obsessed, it has negative connotations. Not with Clive, he was obsessed with snooker, still is, uh, and and. He puts so much into it, his commentary, his journalism, his work for Snooker Scene magazine. It was a 24-7 endeavour with him. With me, basically, I was going to say exactly the same thing. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be sitting here. I had an interview with him in September 1988. We got some mutual friends, two people called Les Adams and Stan Bates, who were Middle and Amateur Champions, who suggested to Clive that I might be a good candidate to, to go into the business. 
and I started off writing local league reports for him you know, on the Alzone League and the Stavridge League and the Dudley League and all that. And then it progressed from there very, very quickly, actually. Within um, three years, I was doing, doing commentary. But without Clive's blessing and with his guidance, I would not be sitting here now. Yeah, I mean, I, you're speaking about the, 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 those little short little expressions that he would use. I can think of one from the other end of the scale, and you're not going to say the shootout. The first ever shootout, Clive <laughs> was doing that. And I... I I, th- I don't know about you, but I think that when we do the snooker shootout, we, we generally speak more for, the, for those 10 minutes because it feels as if you, long periods of silence wouldn't be the right thing, whereas it might be the rest of the time. Anyway, I can remember the match. It was Tony Drago, Rory McLeod, and it went down to the last black with seconds to spell. I, don't, I think Drago might have been three or four points in front. Rory McLeod has gone for black. It's gone all around the table. He's got a double kiss. It's gone into the pocket with a second to go. And I thought, what's Clive going to say here? He's not going to say great snook. He said, so he looked, he couldn't, he wound himself up and he went, incredible! <laughs> his whole head like went up to the ceiling. He had to get it out. And it was probably the right thing to say. But I did not expect to see it. And I was the only one there to witness it. The way he screamed out the top of his voice. Well, you know, he's very well known for, for falling off his chair, isn't he, at Preston Guildhall <laughs> when he was commentating with Dennis Taylor, reaching over instinctively, grabbing Dennis's tie, uh, tie locker. You know, you would ring a bell, I suppose, and, and nearly throttling, throttling. Trying to take him down with him. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> at the back of the door and it was all very very funny but if you think about it why did he do that right the reason he did it was because he was such a perfectionist and he'd said that someone needed one snooker and they needed two and then he made another mistake and he was so you know oh what have I done kind of thing and by the way this was in the frame that wasn't going to be shown because once he got to snookers needed they weren't going to show the frame anyway yeah. and he was so uh, aghast that he'd made this mistake that's why he fell off his chair he was that kind of person he was absolutely a perfectionist yeah, definitely was it. Um, I, I just, I, th- I honestly feel kind of privileged to, you know, because you hear him all through your childhood, growing up, and then early times approach. So to get to work with him, and when the first couple of years at the Champion of Champions in Coventry, I would go up. You'd maybe be envisioning the studio, so you'd get suited and booted and go up at on your twelve forty-five. You'd maybe go up at eleven, half eleven, especially early in the week, and he'd be sitting with a you know notepad there and he'd just be sitting like kind of staring into space the odd time and the odd time he'd just jot something down and like his, I, I used to sit at the top of the match if I was lucky enough to be in the com box with him and I used to guess I thought I wonder what he's going to say you know when he gets called uh, over to you comms in, in his opening gambit his opening line I used to think what would I say and it would, you would never of course get the line that he would come out with he was brilliant I don't that. think I ever uh, I'm, I'm now not the most punctual into the comms box, but I'm not, I'm not as bad as some. But I don't think I ever got into the commentary box to work with him before him. Yeah. He would always be in there. And yeah. there would be a time at the Crucible where I think like, one day I got in there half an hour early. I thought, I'm going to have a bit of lunch in there or something, just wait for the match to start. And he was already in there. <laughs> he, I'd never got to the box before him. You know, He was always in there mentally preparing. And, and sometimes in the days now when you've got a 15-minute gap, uh, more recent ICV events... You know, you could hardly get out of the commentary box, and he was almost knocking you over trying to get in there. Well, <laughs> it was that, it was, I think it was that vital to the ITV tournaments that, that we were lucky enough to work on. I think a year or two before he sort of retired, they would get a taxi, wouldn't they? They mm. would, you yeah. know, they wanted him yeah. on the production in the box because he's that good. And it, you know, he wasn't getting around as nimbly as what he would in his youth. 
and but they would get a taxi to the venue for him every day and make sure that he was there when he even though he had trouble getting around. And I think it's important to get this impression over of him. I know him obviously very, very, very well as we all do. He's very anti-establishment. He's very irreverent. He's very funny as well. Also, um, he's one of these people who's liberal in life, and maybe that doesn't come across in sometimes in his commentary. But he's he's a really good guy, and and he's been very very kind to me. And I know they would uh, would endorse that. I, th- I, th- I think a lot of his uh, he, he was a massive tennis fan, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. he played tennis. Played in Wimbledon. I must, I must tell, well, speaking of which, he actually he, he attempted to write a novel. I was telling this story the other day. <laughs> he attempted to write a novel about it's actually about the tennis circuit, but you can imagine it's kind of really the snooker circuit just sort of changed. But this was years ago. This was old. I mean, Clive's old school anyway. So he hand, he wrote it out by hand in the office, you know, sort of page a day. And then the idea was when he was virtually finished, ninety percent finished, he's going to take it all home, go through. It, revise it. So he'd come out of the office, put the all, print, all sort of handwritten papers on the top of his car. And this was in the days when you had to literally use a key to open open your car. So he'd put them on the top of the car, gone to open the door, and of course, what's happened? Massive gust of wind, all gone, all just <laughs> gone. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, in Kidderminster, there's still the odd page of this sort of literary masterpiece, Lost Forever. One thing, just in closing, I would say is we all got a lot to thank Clive for. Snooker certainly has a lot to thank Clive for. Uh, this is the Snooker Scene podcast. Uh, it wouldn't exist without him. Having said that, Clive has never listened to a podcast in his life, and that's another reason <laughs> to admire him, I think. Um, he, uh, obviously, you know, we, we still speak to me and Phil, and uh, he's still following the snooker. So uh, thank everybody, and uh, we'll do it again sometime. So that's it. Thanks to Neil, Phil and Alan, and uh, there'll be more of that, I'm sure, in the future. Next week, we'll deal with emails, and we'll be, of course, into the thick of the UK Championship. As I say, uh, in York this year, promises to... Uh, I think be hopefully be restored to something like former glories and uh, the status of the tournament back to where it should be. Uh, in the meantime, we are proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. You can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. But for now, as we always say, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.